0: Welcome to The Intersect. I'm Eric Tischler. Abt Associates tackles complex challenges around the world, ranging from improving health and education to assessing the impact of environmental changes. For any given problem, we bring multiple perspectives to the table. We thought it would be enlightening and maybe even fun to pair up colleagues from different disciplines to share their ideas and perhaps spark new thinking about how we solve these challenges. Today I'm joined by two of those colleagues, Colleen Moore and Megan O'Grady. Colleen manages a wide range of housing and community development projects on topics including disaster recovery, resilience, and effective HUD program planning and implementation. Megan manages projects that support climate resilience planning at the state and local level. She works on projects for EPA, NOAA, and state and local clients. Thank you both for joining me.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us.
0: As we record this, we've just ping-ponged between a polar vortex and then a week later, 72-degree temperatures. Uh, This summer, we had deadly and costly wildfires. So there's a lot going on with the climate, and people are really feeling it. And in some cases, the cost can be billions of dollars. So what can we be doing to help those people and keep those costs down in the future?
1: One of the the ways that Megan and I came together uh, really had to do with how uh, HUD responds to to disasters, and, and something short of disasters, but, um, but the kinds of events that happen because of natural hazard risks. And so we, we came together around our knowledge of, of how HUD responds to those things, and then APPS knowledge in the area of climate change and, and how to evaluate and, and mitigate those risks.
2: Yeah, and we pulled lessons from communities around the country who have already started taking a lot of actions to reduce their potential risks to climate change. Communities already know how to plan for for natural disasters. We can look at them for examples and share their lessons with other communities. So what
0: are you guys thinking about? We need to prepare. What are some things we can be doing? What are some steps we can be taking?
1: Well, one of the things I think that Megan is right. A lot of communities do know how to do this, but in many cases, they don't have the resources to do it. So, one of the things that that we we can do here at APT is to is to look at what's what are the range of resources out there that can be brought to bear, and um, and then try to help those communities match some of those resources to the actual challenges that they're facing and and how they can how they can actually mitigate them. I I use that term from kind of the community perspective, but I mean, we can bring the technical knowledge of how to do that, you know, along with the knowledge of how to kind of bring the right resources. And you might want to talk a little bit more about that technical knowledge or mitigation, how you guys look at mitigation.
2: Yeah. So I think Colleen mentioned mitigating uh, risks and it's interesting in In our field, in the field of climate change, when we talk about mitigation, tends to mean reducing greenhouse gas emissions, Um, and so we tend to use mitigation in a different context, and that's one of the things I think that, that working with colleagues in other disciplines we start to explore. Um, and even just making sure that we're using the same lexicon when we're working with communities to provide some understanding of what do we mean when we're talking about changing risks for communities? What might that look like on the ground, whether it's increasing um, heat or, uh, you know, increasing localized flood risk? How do those global concepts actually play out on the ground? And what what are the impacts that people might feel at a, at a very local neighborhood level? Um, and then how do you support communities to find funding to, to take some actions to reduce some of those impacts? Yeah, I think the other thing
1: that, that kind of comes up in that discussion is the communities that are impacted and what their challenges already are because what, one thing that we do see is that many of these risks are felt um, more by Vulnerable communities. So, you know, in our HUD work, we might term that as low and moderate income communities. They're they're they might not be necessarily termed that way, but they may be vulnerable in other ways. They may be vulnerable because of their physical environment. But um, but in in many cases, these are communities that have a lot of challenges anyway. So finding those resources is is even more difficult for them. Um, and also bringing the technical expertise to just figure out how do we how do we do this? How do we avoid this kind of flooding? How do we avoid how do we you know decrease our risk of wildfire or whatever? Um, so that's that's something that we we talk a lot about from a programmatic perspective.
2: Yeah, and this is an increasing topic of awareness. Luckily, is how climate change um, is likely to disproportionately affect. Um, more vulnerable populations. Um, again, whether that's lower moderate income housing, you know, to use sort of the the HUD terms, um, in flood prone areas, or whether it's lack of proper cooling in public housing facilities, or if it's evacuation plans that um, are written in English and not uh, not other languages that are spoken in a community. So there are lots of ways in which low, you know, low and moderate income populations are potentially more at risk from changing climate, and a lot of times the- their particular needs are overlooked in planning. Um, and so I think bringing together Colleen's background, um, working with HUD specifically around accommodating needs for for vulnerable populations. And our work in climate change, we were able, and I think we can continue to work at this intersection to really help um, particularly vulnerable populations.
0: You can learn more about our work on housing and climate change at aptassociates.com.
1: Yeah, I think that one of the areas that we've we've talked about, and I think that a lot of people are talking about, it, especially when we see these kind of increasing high-profile um, disasters, particularly hurricanes and these really um, massive wildfires, uh, is this whole idea of, of mitigation from a community perspective. And I think that's something that those entities that have to come in and and fund disaster recovery would like that to be a, a, a smaller undertaking than it's been in the past. Um, you know, we saw these Really, really significant disasters, especially over the past couple of years and so, I think there is more discussion about how do we help those communities decrease their risk of all of these disasters and And I know HUD is looking at specific mitigation funding, which is the first time that I'm aware that they've that they've done that, so I think there are some opportunities. Uh, and communities will become even more aware of, you know, kind of what some of those strategies are. You know, not only how to evaluate their risks, but how to kind of adopt strategies that will mitigate those. Uh, so I think that's a, you know, that's an area that that people are looking at. And I think that, you know, again, our experience in kind of marrying the program knowledge with some of the, the technical knowledge around these kinds of risks and, um, that have to do with climate change. But, um, but there's a, there's a real good intersection there in terms of not to use your term. Please use
0: my term. Term. <laughs> All right. Megan did too. It's branding. Thank you. Right, yeah. Um, <laughs> you're listening to the intersect.
1: <laughs> um, but, but it, it is, it is an intersection of yeah. those, of those, you know, kind of bodies of, of knowledge. Um, hopefully. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I think, and I think there's a lot of things that communities can do now. You know, that will help reduce some of their risks now and continue to do so into the future. Um, and certainly, those cost money, and we need to recognize that that can be a hurdle for communities. Um, and then we look at the cost of a recovery after a disaster. You know, where can we start to bring some of that post-disaster money into? preparation, you know, and and reducing risks for future.
1: Right. And it's, it, I mean, that does come up in the disaster recovery context. You know, I think the challenge is how do you identify those challenges before that major disaster? You know, it will take Puerto Rico years and years and billions of dollars to rebuild and hopefully they will they will be more resilient, but you know the challenge. I think is to try to can't we can't necessarily predict those things, but to try to look at the risks overall and see how to address some of those before those, you know, events happen.
2: Yeah, I think another thing we can do um, is help communities prepare better for you know uh, un- the unfortunate event of a natural disaster and how can they think ahead of time about, you know, okay, where are our floodplains? Where do we need to start elevating buildings? What sort of teams do we need to have lined up? So that recovery piece, that build back better piece Mm -hmm. um, is, you know, there's a plan for that ahead of time. So it doesn't take so long to get people back in their homes and turn the lights back on and things like that. Yeah, the other piece
1: of this, the resource piece, is, um, is interesting because in, in many cases, some of these community communities do have access to, to some of the resources, some of the resources that we talked about in our work on community resilience, they do already have access to some of those resources, but haven't necessarily thought about using them in this way. So I think that's one thing that, you know, kind of the results of our work can help sort of, you know, get that, get that word out, we hope, Um, and also, you know, help communities think more strategically about that. You know, if there are, if they're using some of these resources, whether they're community development resources or, or others that may become available in the future, uh, it's, they all are going to have to be used as efficiently as possible. You know, what we've seen in, in Puerto Rico and in the Virgin Islands is, you know, it sounds like an unlimited amount of money, but when you look at what the needs are post-disaster and the needs to to really build back in a way that helps avoid the kind of effects that they've had, it's not an unlimited amount of money.
2: You know, one of the other things, we've been talking a lot about extreme events and sort of these high-profile, punctuated um events that get a lot of media attention. But I think we also need to help communities think about some of the more gradual changes that aren't as flashy. Um, rising temperatures, for example, um, and how sort of potentially these the slower rise of some of, of the climate changes might impact communities and help them think about how they can reduce risks from those gradual changes as well as the the extreme events, yeah,
1: absolutely, and that's also something that I think is um is not well acknowledged in some of the vulnerable communities.
2: I think there's there's also thinking about rising temperatures um, and vulnerable populations. One of the actions that's often mentioned is community cooling centers. Um, but there's not enough data around how and when people use those types of, re- of resources to really say if that's an effective intervention or not, and I think that's an other, another area where we need a lot of research around, you know, what, what of the actions um, that people, people often cite as mitigating actions really have the biggest impact.
1: That's another intersection, Megan. (laughs) The apt intersection of research, evaluation, and technical assistance. There we go. go. Colleen and Megan, thank you
0: both. (laughs) Thank you. And thank you for joining us at The Intersect. Colleen, Megan, and I were recorded live at App Studio One in Rockville, Maryland.